to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray. I'm the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church in Paxinos, Pennsylvania. Uh, I want to welcome you to another edition of Pastor Brad's Corner, uh, a space on this uh, podcast that I tried to devote each week uh, to sort of reflect and chew on some sermons uh, and some articles and some helpful more uh, points of application from those sermons. Um, You know, I I started this little corner uh, idea just because I think so often uh, we can, and even as a person who delivers sermons, it's so easy to uh, just deliver a sermon and let it kind of, that be the life of it. Um, And so often I think that's the case with many uh, folks who attend church that uh, it's not often that it sticks sticks with them for a long time, and that's okay. Uh, That's just uh, the way human nature goes, I guess. Um, But I've been trying to not just let uh, the length of the sermon, 40 minutes, be the life of the sermon, so to speak. And and, and uh, I, this is, I think, something that I think is uh, worthwhile to do, uh, especially as one, uh, again, who delivers sermons. It's, it's, uh, it sort of can become a uh, almost robotic thing uh, where you're uh, churning out sermons. And I think there's a, something to... To the fact that um, I I need this time of reflection too. I need this time of meditation and musing upon what uh, the Spirit uh, can do and say through uh, the sermon, even after it's done. And uh, I think that's uh, an important thing to do. So uh, that's what I like to do during this time. And I also like to give some uh, some some quotes and passages from uh, various articles that many times I I, I believe kind of uh, augments uh, what we've been uh, talking about in the sermons and and whatnot. So uh, that's what I like to do. So I hope you've enjoyed these little segments. I I enjoy just uh, sitting and chatting and kind of just sharing what's uh, been on my heart, what was was on my heart (laughs) when I was uh, preaching, but also just what's been kind of on my mind uh, in the in the interim uh, between uh, sermons and and uh, throughout my week and stuff. I read a lot of articles, so I I like to be able to uh, share some of these with you uh, in this way. so I hope you're enjoying these. So I, I have been chewing on uh, the sermons. Uh, of course, this past Sunday was August 2nd. So uh, we, uh, uh, my dad actually was preaching for uh, for Stonington at the uh, our annual church picnic. So we had a church picnic outside, and and my dad was preaching. So that was such a blessing to have my dad there. Uh, it is. It, it's actually uh, that's one thing I could share a lot about. Just the the fact that I'm able to have my dad uh, around. Um, especially in the last several months, um, is such, I, I can't tell you how much of a blessing it is to, uh, have him here and have him, uh, able to be, um, called on, um, on <laughs> a minute's notice and be able to chat with him about various issues or struggles or, or things that are just, uh, pressing on me. Uh, I'm able to call him and, uh, chat with him and get his wisdom and insight. And that's... <laughs> There's almost no other blessing I'd rather have, and so I'm so thankful for having him, and he was able to come and preach, and so, uh, oh yeah, I forgot, uh, before we get there, uh, I want to talk to you uh, about uh, the presenting sponsor for this show, uh, Fresh Roasted Coffee. Uh, Fresh Roasted Coffee is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania. Uh, they are committed to uh, giving you, the coffee drinker out there, the highest qual-
quality coffee in the world. And uh, I can vouch for uh, their efforts in that. Uh, they roast their beans uh, per order. So when you order something, they roast it for you uh, for that order. And they uh, package it to, uh, as they say, to, uh, to allow you to experience fresh coffee at peak drinkability. Uh, I was quickly introduced to fresh roasted coffee after I moved to, from Florida to Pennsylvania, and I'm, it's one of the, the, the greatest blessings I've ever received. <laughs> uh, I love fresh roasted coffee. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is almost always what I'm drinking uh, in the morning. In fact, I have some of their uh, fresh roasted coffee here right in front of me this morning. And so I, I love uh, all of their roasts, all of their different blends, and I think you will too. So go to Fresh Roasted Coffee. The link is in the notes here, and you can also use my coupon code grace 10 g-r-a-c-e 10 grace 10 at the checkout and you'll get 10 percent off your first order um or any mortar for that matter and you can order it specifically for whatever your your roasting needs are whether you use a drip coffee maker or a pour over or french press or however you get your coffee just make sure it's fresh roasted so use grace 10 at checkout and i'll be glad that you did and you will be even gladder that you did so uh that's fresh roasted coffee make sure you get some and enjoy that this morning before we jump into the show now though i kind of wanted to um uh, so talk about some of the sermons that I, I was able to deliver on July 26th. So that was the last time I, I did some preaching, um, was July 26th, so it's two Sundays ago. Um, and that was a, a fairly monumental Sunday. <laughs> and, and, and I say monumental in the smallest uh, sense of the word, just because it marked the um, final installment of my sort of first preaching series. Um, not really. I, I had finished past the pastoral epistles this past, uh, at the beginning of this year, and I had preached through Psalm 119 um, this uh, in 2019 as well. So, But that was in Sunday school. So it was kind of in a different venue, though. In the Sunday morning service, um, this was my first sermon series that I have been able to close out, which is kind of a cool thing for me. Um, and I was preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And so um, I w- very quickly early on, um, when I knew that that I was going to be transitioning into a full-time senior pastor position, for whatever reason, uh, well, not for whatever reason, it was definitely the Holy Spirit, but uh, I knew that the Gospel of Mark was going to be the first sort of uh, sermon series that I wanted to go through. It was the one for, uh, it was just laid on my heart that the gospel of Mark is a a book that needs to be unpacked, if you, if you like that word, <laughs> uh, that it needs to be explored, it needs to be examined. Um, I had been reading it in my devotions, and it had just stuck with me, uh, just how um, unexpected it was. Um, and that's what I titled my sermon series, Unexpected, because I think on every page of that book, on in every sort of vignette, every little uh, pericope story, uh, even ones that you're familiar with, the Gospel of Mark really presents an unexpected view of that story, uh, one that sort of takes you by surprise. And uh, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to talk through it, just because um, it's a challenging book in a lot of ways. It's a book that is uh, light on um, sort of exposition, and it's heavy on action. Um, There's lots of little details um, but there's also a few editorial remarks, like if you are reading the Gospel of John, it's it's a way different experience uh, than if you're reading the Gospel of Mark. 
And I think that that's, again, shows just not the, it shouldn't make you worried about that. It should actually encourage you because uh, the differences in the Gospels lead to a more uh, robust view of Jesus Christ. And I think that's sort of the point. Um, Mark's Gospel is different precisely because he's not telling you about a different Jesus. He's telling you a different sort of perspective of this Jesus who is unexpected. And I'll just come out and say it. He's kind of uncomfortable. Um, that's sort of what I gathered throughout Mark is is you you need to check your comfy cozy view of of Jesus at the door you you know uh, if you if you know what I mean by this but you can't bring in your flannel graph Jesus um, and expect to find him in Mark because that you know easygoing Sunday school Jesus that you often find in children's Sunday school classes is not the Jesus of Mark he's uh, he's sort of gruff he's sort of short he's uh, doing things that are very unexpected that people find incredibly scandalous um, and I think that that's what I loved about this about this book is that it just it put it pits the characters that we're so often familiar with in a view of them, and it gives a view of them um, that I don't think we often like to think about. Um, so, I th- it, one of the things that has stuck with me, especially uh, as I closed out, so I, I, I started part one, July 7th of 2019, and I finished part 34, 34 sermons in a 16-chapter book on July 26th, uh, 26, 2020. And uh, so, I think there was just, it's really amazing how God worked that out to allow that, all that stuff to happen. But um, it's been what I what has really stuck with me is just the fact that this Jesus who died on the cross and then rose again the third day, that very familiar idea that we have of this Jesus, this, yes, it's the gospel, but it's a very sort of colloquial Christian uh, sort of idea that we have that about Jesus who died and then rose again. That was such an um, just unfamiliar idea to those that were around Jesus and especially his disciples. Um, If you read it and you're thinking that these guys were just so on the on the nose and, and on point and they were so pious and they were so uh, you, you won't find that in mark you won't you won't find that sort of version of the disciples actually what I was saying throughout uh, my time studying mark is the fact that the disciples are kind of dense <laughs> they they kind of bumble around and they they don't always catch what Jesus is trying to say and there's several examples of this that you know you can go through but I think obviously some of the more ones that stick out in my brain are just the ones that come from Holy Week. So, I think it's Mark chapter uh, 11 begins what we commonly refer to as Holy Week in our sort of church liturgy or whatever you want to call it. Um, And throughout that, Jesus has given them uh, several instances, several uh, sort of declarations that he is going to die on a cross and that he is also going to rise again from that death. And yet, what do you find in Mark chapter 16? You find the disciples completely scandalized by that death, and you find them completely uh, in fear over what might happen to them because Jesus's body is now uh, come up missing. You know, the, 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 the ladies, they go to the tomb on early resurrection day, 
and they find the tomb empty, and they aren't even thinking about resurrection. Their their immediate thought was, Jesus' body has been stolen. Um, And I think that that perspective, that perspective that Jesus' body has been stolen, but also when you find out later on that the disciples, what, what are they doing in the aftermath of the cross? They are mourning and weeping. And in fact, the words there in the original Greek uh, signify, they are lamenting. Uh, That is, they are grieving for a dead body. They are grieving for this teacher that they had been with for three years. There was a period at the end of that sentence, he is dead. Uh, It wasn't sort of a a, something that they had expected uh, him to rise from the dead, even though they should have, yes, because we're viewing it from a different perspective, but put yourself in their shoes. They have uh, been sort of um, raised their entire lives to expect a certain uh, 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 version of the Messiah. So the Messiah, in a lot of the cases in the first century, was commonly associated with a king or a warrior, a ruler who would come, yes, on a divine mission, but the divine mission wasn't death and resurrection and salvation. The divine mission was insurrection. It was revolt. It was revolution uh, against Roman tyranny. And so there was this, uh, this colloquial idea that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to uh, overthrow the Roman uh, dominance that had been plaguing Israel and bring Israel back to uh, to sort of the world power that it was under its heydays under King David and whatnot. And so that's why he's often referred to, yes, as the son of David, because um, he is from the Davidic line, so it makes Jesus royal. But also, there was also an expectation that he, whoever this Messiah, was going to be, was going to bring Israel back to that sort of version of itself. And so you can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine the disciples, put yourself in the apostles' shoes when, or put yourself in their sandals, um, that when they are see Jesus die, when they are aware that this corpse of their teacher has been put into a tomb, and that tomb has been sealed with a stone which man alone by himself cannot roll away, there's a period there. There is a finality there. There is no expectation that Jesus was going to rise again. And so you can <laughs> put yourself again in their shoes when they are there mourning and they're weeping and they're crying and they're eating and they're in the upper room. And as John, I think it's John chapter 19 or John chapter 20 refers to it as they are there because of fear of the Jews. They have locked the doors to this room because of their fear of what the Jews outside might do to them because Jesus's body is missing. Scandal and rumors are swirling around and in comes Jesus. In comes Jesus through that door, and he's there in front of them. You can imagine, just I just imagine their faces. Uh, I was using this example in my sermon on uh, on June, July twenty sixth, uh, going through this this passage. Just uh, I always imagine as they're sitting there eating, and all of a sudden Jesus comes through the door. Even the door is locked. He just transform, transmutes himself through the walls of of this room, and he's there with them. Just the spit takes and the gasps and the and the double takes that happen all across that room from all the disciples, because they weren't expecting this. It was totally unexpected. 
this idea of a death-defying Messiah, of a sort of sin-crushing Savior that wasn't on their radar, that wasn't sort of what they were uh, thinking would happen. And, and that's what I love about Mark. And what I love about Mark 16 specifically, and as it transitions into the book of Acts, um, because this is what I really love about about the scriptures, <laughs> among other things, but just how it takes it takes these guys who um, have been bumbling around. They're, you know, as I've said, they're sort of dense guys. They're sort of guys who um, aren't you know, always with it. They're not always there all the time or whatever. And it takes them and it, and it transitions them from, uh, this point of fear and it, and it, and they are transformed into men of just incredible faith because we have those same apostles. Yes. The same apostles who are locking themselves away in a room because of fear of what might happen to their own lives they are the same apostles who are everywhere in the book of Acts preaching the gospel out with no fear, out of bold faith. And they are going up to, yes, the very people who killed Jesus, who had him murdered on the cross. They are going up to them and saying, this resurrection, it's the real deal. We saw it. We were there. We can attest to it. This is true. Jesus is not just a teacher. He's the Messiah. He's the one sent from God, not just to redeem Israel, to save the world. And the boldness that ha- that, uh, that happens in Acts all stems from those from those moments of Holy Week, the last moments of Holy Week specifically, where the cross takes on a new light. The cross is now not this, is still scandalous, but it's not a scandalous moment of defeat. It's this scandalous moment of victory. And that's why we can look on the cross with the same sort of hope, because we know that the cross isn't the final point. It's not a period. There's a semicolon there. He is dead, semicolon, but he rose again the third day. This is what transformed the apostles' life. This is what continues to transform our lives today. Uh, and there's a great article. So I want to share, that's, that was sort of my, my bent when I was preaching Mark 16, is just the way that our lives are transformed. I, I use the word transfigured there. And I, listen, because one of my friends, uh, Todd Brewer, he is an editor and a writer for Mockingbird, a, a great place I love to uh, write for and contribute for. And he wrote recently a great article I, I really enjoyed. I'll link it in the notes to this show, The Folly of the Cross in Our Divided World. And he writes this, the following. So this is Todd writing, quote, crucifixes are kind of everywhere. If you look closely enough, we wear them as necklaces, earrings, or tattoos. We use them to decorate our houses, and most churches usually place a cross front and center. Athletes make the sign of the cross when they excel in competition. Vampires are repelled by the mere sight of one. At the center of Christian faith, the cross has become woven into our cultural fabric, becoming a symbol with no obvious referent. The abundance of crosses expresses and enables an indifferent familiarity with Jesus' own crucifixion that was entirely foreign to the first Christians. While the Jewish literature often saw 
martyrdom as noble, the idea of a suffering, crucified Messiah was largely inconceivable, even to Jesus' own disciples. The cross was a scandal to Jews and utter foolishness to the Romans. It should be a shock, Todd continues, to us that the means of Jesus' death was universally disdained by those who first witnessed the event. Likewise, the identification that this crucified Jesus was God himself was pure nonsense to literally everyone. There was no path that could not be taken, no narrative to tell, no philosophy that could have reasoned its way to arrive at the belief that God had died while hanging naked on a tree. There was simply no precedent to comprehend, let alone stake your life upon, the idea of a crucified God. Todd closes, he says, The cross of God, he continues, marked a rupture of existing beliefs. It enabled a fundamentally new discourse about God, ethics, and history itself. It spurred ingenious reflection on the part of early Christians to make sense of this event. The scriptures they read, that had read their entire lives, now bore new, unforeseen meanings in the shadow of the cross. Its themes of kingship, atonement, promise, and law were shattered and reinterpreted in light of the cross of Jesus. The temple was not the place to atone for sin, but an analogy for Christ's death. And what was promised to Abraham was none other than Jesus, the Davidic Messiah would conquer the world not through force, but through suffering. Again, unexpected. Again, it was this idea of a, of a dying Savior, a dying God, a bleeding God, that was so unexpected, that was so uh, uncanny, so, as he says, inconceivable. They couldn't wrap their minds about it, such as why, again, he references what Paul says, it is a stumbling block and an utter foolishness, this cross of Jesus. Why? Because it was a, a symbol of scandal, and yet Jesus, God, through his divine plan of redemption, had twisted it into a symbol of victory. And that's why we hold up the cross with such high praise and hope even today, is because of what Jesus did on the cross. This death-defying Messiah, he's our only hope. And he's the hope that we have and that we find throughout the gospel of Mark and the gospel itself. And that's why I love Mark. It's an unexpected gospel that gives you this view of Jesus that is entirely unexpected. Uh, that was my sermon on Sunday morning, uh, July 26th, closing out my sermon series on Gospel of Mark with Mark chapter 16. Um, on Sunday evening, though, kind of transitioning a little bit, um, I gave another sermon, and it was one that I had been thinking about for several weeks, actually, um, because I had I had preached uh, several months ago through Joshua chapter 10, which is that great uh, passage where it relays that incredible miracle story um, of Joshua calling out to God to let the sun stand still, and then the sun stands still, and Joshua and the Israelites are able to gain victory over their enemies. Um, and then I had continued reading, and I had flipped through the rest of Joshua, <laughs> it was so interesting, because uh, you have that story of conquest, and it's actually a, a surprisingly effective narrative in Joshua chapter 10, just from a literary standpoint. 
And then you turn to Joshua chapter 11, <laughs> and then you continue in Joshua chapter 12 and 13, and all the way through the end of chapter 21, and you have this glut of chapters which are so incredibly difficult to read. Um, you know, there's all sorts of passages of the Bible that are hard to read, but I, I was flipping through, and I was like, man, these are hard passages. Um so really, it created a really challenge that I was actually I wanted to try and I wanted to try and study out and tackle, which was how do we apply the the narrative of Joshua eleven through twenty one, let's say, to a modern context? Because um, what you have in Joshua eleven, really chapter ten, but really eleven through twenty one, is a record, a listing of Joshua's and Israel's victories over their enemies, and then the subsequent chapters all go into dividing all of the land that they have conquered and apportioning it and giving it as an inheritance, as it says there in the passages, to the different tribes of Israel. How do you make that, uh, how, do you, how do you preach that in a way that applies to where we are? So, I was reading this if you read these passages, it'll be um, perhaps a, a lot of meticulous reading, not, you know, like a fun narrative to read. Um, and as I was thinking about it, it struck me. Um, obviously, I think this was the Holy Spirit leading me, teaching me, letting me see this as I'm able to study out the, study out the scriptures, um, that these chapters... This is a resume, not of Israel's conquests. These chapters are a resume of God's faithfulness. That each victory that Israel has is another sort of tick mark in the sort of uh, laundry list of God's faithful working for his people. Each time they were approached with an insurmountable uh, foe, what did God promise them? You have this promise in chapter 10. You have the, almost the same exact promise in chapter 11 that God himself would go out and fight for Israel and it would be by his hand that they would be delivered. That's the promise that Israel has given. And I would say, similarly, that's the promise we have too. The promise of faithfulness. The promise of patient, untiring deliverance. That's what we have too in our God. The resume of faithfulness, no, we're not out conquering enemy nations and overtaking their lands or anything like that. But what do we do have? We have a God who is faithful, who promises to deliver his people. And that's what he still does. That's what he's still doing even now. It's a promise that, if you think about it, it's a passage that is incredibly timely to where we are now. That despite all the odds, despite all of the circumstances and the surroundings and everything that we can see in front of us, there's a, in chapter 11, in fact, uh, the enemies that come up against Joshua in chapter 11, it says, are more than the sands of the shore that line the coast. That's how innumerable the enemies felt to Joshua and Israel. Despite that, what does God promise? That he would deliver them. In one of the most easy fashions, read Joshua 11 because it tells you about how God is unsurprised by the, the, the commotion. He's unsurprised by the chaos and the conflict. 
He is steadily faithful. That's the God we have. That's the God that uh, delivers his people. And guess what? That's the God who all the way is trying to get us to see that that's the type of faithfulness he has. Yes, the type of faithfulness that would lead Israel into the promised land is the same type of faithfulness that would lead God's own son all the way to the cross. And this is why I love reading the Bible and always viewing Christ in it and viewing Christ as the center of it because it points to him. This resume of faithfulness is showing us and reminding us that this faithful God who kept Israel from its enemies is the same faithful God who is going to keep you and I from all things that are detriment, from all things that would oppose us. Yes, conflict, turmoil, stress, and chaos will come up in our lives, but you know what? Our God is faithful. His resume uh, says that as much. Each victory in Israel's life and each victory in your life is his. It's because of him. It's because of what he has done. This is what I love about passages, again, that are unexpectedly gospel-centered, that are unexpectedly so uh, so um, uh, geared towards driving us to Jesus. Yes, even in a laundry list of Israel's conquest, we can find the faithfulness of God. Uh, it's, a, it's what we have as our only lifeline. It's what we should um, uh, always count on. Um, it's this faithful God who unexpectedly goes to a cross and dies for us. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Pastor Brad's Corner. This has been the Ministry Minded Podcast. I hope you've been blessed and encouraged uh, by this episode. Uh, please subscribe. You can find Ministry Minded on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or on Anchor, on Google and several other places uh, you can find. So just go in the show notes. You can find different links to those uh, places where you get your podcast. So I appreciate your encouragement. Make sure you check out Fresh Roasted. Thank you for supporting uh, them and me. Uh, and thank you always for listening and commenting and subscribing. And thank you for your prayers. I greatly appreciate all your encouragement. Uh, I'll see you on the next episode. Blessings.